0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: Welcome to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. I'm Deborah Yale, a senior editor at Knowledge of Wharton. I want to welcome Zeke Hernandez, a management professor here at the Wharton School. Uh, He's here to talk about his latest research on global strategies, ethnic communities, and institutions. In particular, he examined the phenomenon of companies expanding into other countries to serve people in their same ethnic group. For example, Korean banks entering China to serve Koreans who live in that country. His paper is titled, When Do Ethnic Communities Affect Foreign Location Choice? Dual Entry Strategies of Korean Banks in China. Welcome, Zeke.
0: Thank you. It's nice to be with you, Deborah.
1: So tell me, how did you get this idea to study ethnic communities and banks it seems like a fairly unusual topic.
0: Well, it, it is actually an unusual topic, particularly in business research. Uh, and I guess since it is unusual, I'll have to give you an unusual answer to how I started becoming interested in these issues around immigration and ethnic communities. So it goes back actually to uh, my early years in grad school. Uh, I started my PhD very interested in the globalization of companies and um, uh, what I had in my head as kind of a, a young and bright-eyed grad student was this uh, this visual of a map of the world with dots uh, scattered uh, across the map representing the locations of companies and what I wanted to explain was um, you know h- how do we how do we explain the, this map, these locations of companies where they choose to expand abroad? And so uh, I just mulled on that question and, and had the, the map pop in my head uh, periodically. And uh, one day early in grad school, I was actually uh, up, uh, I was lying in my bed, but I was awake, stressed about an upcoming uh, uh, statistics exam. And uh, the map popped in my head and... Uh, for a reason that's hard for me to explain, another map uh, overlaid onto the original map, which uh, had dots representing the movements of people or immigrants around the world, and there was, I guess, a, a moment of of inspiration or, or or an insight where I asked that there had you know there has to be some a relationship between these two maps, the movements of firms and the movements of immigrants around the world, and so uh, that was. Uh, the the beginning or the seed of an idea to study how uh, immigrants affect the uh, global movements of companies, which, as I said, is a very unusual, I think, way to come up with research ideas. Um, But, you know, that led to uh, really a stream of research uh, on this topic. And so this is not my first foray uh, into immigrants and and, uh, firms. Now, what this paper is, is a follow-up on previous research. Um, And uh, I just want to say uh, just a couple things. One is that the topic might seem unusual, but the phenomenon of firms expanding into foreign markets is actually quite common. right? So we see it all the time with say, just to give a few examples, fast food chains entering the US market right, to serve Asian or Central American customers. Uh, we also see it with tech companies moving from Silicon Valley to Asia or vice versa to tap into engineering talent of a certain nationality right? founded by, say, immigrant managers right, or things like that. So it's actually fairly common. Um, in this case, uh, one of my co-authors on this paper, Young Lee, uh, and I, we had separately done research showing that foreign companies are more likely to invest and survive in the U.S. in cities or states that had... A greater size of immigrants from their country of origin, and um, we decided to join forces and ask a different question uh, for this paper.
1: So, tell us about your research. What did you set out to study?
0: So, as as I was saying, what this paper does is it builds uh, on on an empirical finding that I just mentioned. So, just to repeat. Uh, Some of my work and and that of others, including my co-author on this, we'd shown that firms are more likely to move into a foreign location the greater the number of co-national immigrants that live in that location. So say, uh, to use another interesting example, a South African company is more likely to invest in Colorado than Arkansas because Colorado has the second largest population of South African immigrants in the U.S., And this is after we account for the economic attractiveness of Colorado and Arkansas for that company. What we wanted to add is some nuance into this previous finding, because, you know, on average it's true, uh, and, and it's been shown in lots of different countries, that a firm, say, from country X tends to locate in a place with immigrants from country X. But there's actually a lot of variation around that average. So not all companies will find it desirable to locate where immigrants from their home country live. Uh, And we even became aware of some cases in which companies deliberately avoided locating where immigrants lived because they didn't want to be associated with catering to a, quote, niche ethnic group of customers or workers. Instead, they actually wanted to serve the broader market. So in some ways, we we asked the opposite question of what uh, our prior research had asked before, which is when do firms not co-locate with immigrants of their same nationality? And we felt that this could be important and interesting to help us understand the real fundamental mechanism by which immigrant populations attract firms from their home countries.
1: So you uh, also mentioned in your paper something called the dual entry strategy. So this is something I gather that foreign companies employ when they enter another uh, another market. Uh, tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so um, the dual entry strategy really is just, I guess, a uh, nice term that we give to our the core argument of this paper, so the argument goes something like this: um, you know the the population of people of a certain ethnicity or nationality is quite small, right? And so if you're going to rely on that population as a platform for foreign expansion to move into say a new country or or a new market, city or state, um, that can be fairly limiting, right because it's going to prevent you from serving the much larger or broader market in the foreign location. So to use, uh, start using the example of, uh, of the empirical context for this study, say you're a, you're a Korean bank, right, and you're, you're only serving ethnic Koreans as a customer base, uh, maybe you limit your ability to serve the larger Chinese population in the, in the host market, right? Or if you only hire workers from among your co-ethnic network, you can't always perhaps access a broader pool of of labor and talent, right, that's non-ethnic. So the question is then why would a firm take the risk of limiting their growth in a foreign location by catering to a small ethnic population? And so our argument is that firms take that risk when the institutional environment of the target location is weak, right, and it presents risks that only the ethnic population can mitigate. Otherwise, if the institutional environment is strong— then you don't need to rely on the ethnic population as much, and you don't run that risk of being stuck in a niche. So I realize that so far what I've said is a little cryptic, so let me, let me give you an example that will apply to, to banks because banks are the types of firms we studied here, but the argument can be generalized to other types of firms. So say I'm a bank... And I'm considering moving into a foreign uh, market in China, right, A, a province that has very weak laws, weak courts, weak property rights. So that makes lending very risky, right? I don't have credit rating agencies or other ways to ascertain the reliability of a potential borrower or a potential employee. So in a situation like that, it turns out that an ethnic community can be really valuable. So we know from other research in sociology and political science and even economics that Ethnic communities or groups of immigrants, um, they essentially create these markets that are powered by trust, right, to facilitate business transactions. Why? Because we have bonds based on common nationality. We use social pressure to enforce contracts. So, so the idea of, hey, look, I know your family or you have a reputation in this community. If you act in bad faith, that's going to be harmed, right? This is this is just what we call social enforcement, okay? Um, now— When is social enforcement valuable? It's valuable if I don't have another means of enforcing business practices, right? So if the legal uh, or local institutional environment is weak, then firms from country X will really benefit a lot from tapping into this uh, kind of social fabric and doing business within the ethnic communities. But like I mentioned earlier, this is limiting, right? Because the social mechanisms that produce trust really only work within the boundaries of the ethnic social group. In contrast, if the legal or institutional environment is strong, then as a firm from country X, I will probably want to rely more on those formal mechanisms that allow me then to do transactions with the entire population rather than with just a niche within that population. So, now to answer, to get sort of at the point of your question, this leads to what we call the dual entry strategy. If I'm a firm and I'm considering expansion into a location, that has an ethnic population, I'm going to do it uh, if that location has a weak institutional environment, right? That's weak courts, weak laws, weak property rights. But I will not, or I will be at least much less swayed by the ethnic population in places where institutional environments are strong. That's the dual entry strategy.
1: So uh, in in your paper in particular looked at uh, the uh, ethnic Korean population in China and Korean banks entering the country. So uh, first of all, I didn't even know there were that many Koreans in China. So can you set the context for us a little bit there?
0: Yeah, uh, and I'm glad you asked that because actually th- this is one of my favorite aspects of this paper is just that that the data and the context are very, very cool. So uh, again, this is uh, perhaps uh, idiosyncratic, but I should mention I should have mentioned earlier, so I have two co-authors on this paper, uh, Young Li and Sun Huang Guang. They, they're they both at SUNY Buffalo. And it turns out that one of them is Chinese and the other one is Korean. So uh, so I learned a lot from them. And one of the things I learned is that China actually does have a really large population of ethnic Koreans. Um, and their history is, I think, both inherently interested, interesting, I'm sorry, but really important for our empirical research design. So these ethnic Koreans moved to China... Uh, in the early 1900s to escape Japanese colonial rule. And at their peak, they actually reached a population of nearly 2 million. In 1949, what happens is the Communist Party takes over power in China, and the South Korean government um, does not recognize that government as fully legitimate. They actually recognize the Taiwanese government as well. And so that leads to a a long-standing diplomatic standoff, And uh, from 1949 till 1992, all investment, all migration, all travel completely ceases between South Korea and China um, until 1992, like I said. So what we have here is a population of ethnic Koreans, over a million of them, that between 1949 and 1992 are essentially stuck in China. They can't go back to the motherland. And so what they do is they assimilate into China, but they are very careful about maintaining the separate Korean identity and language and you know even schools and neighborhoods. And uh, you know they, they are uh, well-received by the Chinese, but they're distinct enough that they're even to this day recognized as one of the 50-plus officially recognized minorities in China. They actually have a, a specific name, the Chaoshang, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So why does all this history matter for us? It actually is empirically very convenient for our purposes because after 1992, South Korean firms, uh, you know, attracted by the size of the Chinese market, they start expanding back into China, uh, including banks, which is the firms we study. And so what we can do is we can use this as a natural experiment, right? Because we can explore how the post-1992 expansion of Korean banks into China is affected by the presence of these ethnic Koreans. And the nice thing about this is that where these ethnic Koreans live is clearly not driven by the movement of banks, right? And so uh, that is a natural experiment that allows us to make causal claims and not just correlational claims.
1: So what are some of the practical implications of your research based on uh, what you discovered?
0: Sure. So let me tell you about the findings first. So, uh, you know, in a nutshell, what we find is support for this idea of a dual entry strategy. So we um, uh, assess the entries of South Korean banks province by province, and we find that um, uh, the presence of these uh, ethnic Koreans strongly influenced their location in a province, but only in provinces that had weak and unstable institutional environments. If the province had strong and stable institutions, then these Chaoshan uh, or ethnic Koreans. Uh, in our case, did not have a significant influence on the location choice of the banks. Um, in terms of practical implications, I think for firms, it offers kind of a rule of thumb to determine when it's actually valuable to rely on an immigrant population as a platform for foreign expansion and and sort of the the um, the lever or the pivot, right that would tell you yes, um, you know it, it is it is worthwhile taking that risk of catering to a niche population either as customers or employees or or, or anything else, is when uh, when the institutional environment is weak and they can serve uh, as kind of this community of social enforcement or, or uh, as I mentioned earlier, and if the institutional environment is strong, then perhaps um, you are not as well off. Um, or, or maybe that I, I would maybe say that it more softly. The benefits will be less. I, I think there's still benefits, but maybe they're not as large.
1: So, what sets your work apart from prior academic work in this area?
0: Um, I think the most distinctive aspect is just introducing the importance of institutions as an explanation for this relationship between uh, immigration and foreign investment. Uh, I think all the research so far. Uh, had not considered context enough, right? Uh, and that's, uh, I think, you know, we looked at the context of the receiving location in terms of its institutions. Uh, I think there's certainly other aspects of context that matter. Um, but uh, perhaps it adds a little more realism, just saying, you know, immigrants are uh, really valuable uh, for firms, uh, but they're not a panacea. They're not like this magic bullet that is desirable in, in all cases.
1: So, how are you gonna follow up this research? What's your next step?
0: Well, I guess I hope to have some other dream that gives me a flash of inspiration but <laughs> but absent that uh, and more seriously, um, I think that again, this is a subset of a of a much bigger research agenda and um, you know today uh, we we live in a time where immigration is being question rather significantly, right? Is it valuable for the economy? Um, uh, you know, do, do immigrants contribute? Uh, do immigrants take away jobs? Do immigrants, um, uh, facilitate investment or not? And so, uh, at the risk of perhaps being a little too grand, uh, let me just set this in context. Um, Much of what's studied about immigration these days is what I call the labor effects of immigration, right, which has to do with immigrants affecting jobs and wages. Uh, It turns out that there's a lot of research on this, decades and decades, and the National Academies of Science recently uh, wrote a very large report that that anyone interested in this topic should read, and the conclusion was that in terms of wages and jobs, immigrants uh, either have um, negligible effects or they might have a very small negative effect on a very small sliver of the population, right? So we're debating a lot about an issue that turns out to be not that consequential. The The problem with a lot of the research that's come before is that uh, an economy doesn't just grow based on labor, right? Uh, so basic economic models— uh, tell us that an economy is a function of labor, but also capital, and also just innovation and knowledge, right? Those are the three things that power growth in an economy. And what my research is, is, is showing, uh, so this particular paper, for example, shows that there's a relationship between immigration and capital, right? Showing that immigrants actually attract capital from foreign markets, which then helps the economy grow. That's not something that you hear a lot about in the public debate, Uh, And then there's other research, uh, you know, not by me and and some by me, which uh, shows that immigration uh, actually has a huge effect on innovation and knowledge, right? So we know, for example, that immigrants um, tend to start firms that produce innovative products at a much higher rate than natives. Uh, We know that, for example, immigrants increase the stock of patents in a country uh, significantly uh, and that immigrants produce a lot of other kinds of innovations, and so I would say that my follow-up to this research is to hit on those two other aspects, right? On the capital and innovation aspects of the economy. Um, and uh, a third piece of this is that um, we also need to know how firms respond to immigration, right? And that's another thing that's missing from our public debate is that firms are the ones who end up hiring immigrants or natives firms are the ones who produce the bulk of innovation and firms are the ones who make most of capital investments and so how this triad of immigrants right uh, the economy right and and these economic outcomes that we care about mutually affect another is super important and so uh you know there's so much to do that i would say my follow up to this research is to try to make a dent in this uh in this really big uh, area that is Uh, not just important, but uh, I guess politically sensitive these days.
1: We'll have to stay tuned. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can find more insights from Knowledge at Wharton on our website, knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on iTunes, and we welcome your reviews. For
0: more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.